I'm Brian, and welcome back to my podcast, From Hevel to Eternity. This is podcast number two on the book of Hosea. It's probably better termed my Hosea Geek Out session. If you missed the last podcast, I would recommend listening to that one first. It provides an overview of the book of Hosea. Today, we're just going to belly flop right into the deep end with it, though. I also hope that you have been following along with us and reading some of Hosea. Hopefully you've read through the first three chapters. These chapters provide an outline of what the entire book is about. Last episode we checked in with the overall narrative and theme of the book and how they are all interwoven. Hosea is called by God to marry Gomer, who is an unfaithful wife. They have three kids, each with symbolic names. Through her unfaithfulness, Gomer runs into the arms of other men. Eventually, Hosea tracks her down and buys her back the faithful husband redeeming his unfaithful bride. We are told in chapter 3 that this mirrors the relationship between God and the Israelites, specifically the northern kingdom of Israel. God is a faithful husband. God's people are an unfaithful bride. Israel runs to other gods, committing acts of idolatry and adultery. God is faithful to his promises and has a plan to redeem his people. The narrative of Hosea and Gomer is the narrative of God and his people. As with last episode, I'll put a little disclaimer out there now that Hosea, as a book, deals with some adult themes. It's one of the more PG-13 books in the Bible. So, just putting that out there in case there are kids or young ears around. Because of the narrative parallels, there are some people that ask the question, okay, so is the book of Hosea a literary parable, an allegory, or historical fact? Basically, was the story of Hosea and Gomer a real story or just a literary device used by the author to get his point across? Theologically, that question isn't relevant, but I'm going to try to give my answer to that question because it's one one that the readers tend to gravitate towards at times. While this book reads a lot like a parable or allegory, we have no indication that it wasn't an historical event. No outside sources from the time or ancient commentaries contradict the historical elements of the story. I think another argument for these events being being historical is that there are other places in the Bible where prophets were called to live out strange events that portrayed or mirrored other events and relationships occurring on a grander scale. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Isaiah are all called by God to do specific things that are real-life actions, displaying greater real-life events. They are frequently called sign acts. You can read good examples of these in Jeremiah 13 and Ezekiel's chapters 3 through 5. They were usually pretty provocative and abnormal, such as Ezekiel eating a scroll, cooking bread over human dung, laying on his side for long periods of time, and building a sandcastle to act out the coming siege of Jerusalem. Yes, that's in the Bible, and you can read Ezekiel's 3-5 through if you're curious more about that. Small but real events that would have attracted attention to a message about larger real events. Something else that's telling to me is the plain old language used in the book. If this was a poetic allegory, or even parabolic, I'm not sure that's the right word for being like a parable, but I'm going to roll with it. Whether it was allegorical or parabolic, if it was, then there would be more imagery. We wouldn't have this language that's not eloquent and not very visual. You know, parables have this huge, dramatic, 
very visual language in it, and this book doesn't have nearly as much of that. The book of Hosea is pretty straightforward from like a vocabulary perspective. Do this because of this. Marry this woman because of this. That's not normally how allegory works. There's a quote in the Ryrie Study Bible that sums up my overall opinion. He says, Though Hosea's tragic experience illustrates God's love for his wayward people, there are no legitimate grounds for rejecting the historicity of the marriage. Diving a little more into a couple of the names that show up here, we see that the name Hosea actually means salvation. That's the same as the name Joshua, also Yeshua, and it's the same as the name Jesus. Also talking about names, the name used to describe the northern kingdom in the book is sometimes Israel and sometimes it's Ephraim, especially depending on your translation. And all of this continues to make things more confusing. Why is the nation of Israel sometimes called Ephraim? Where did that come from? The answer is actually super simple. Ephraim was the name of one of the largest Israelite tribes living in the northern kingdom. It was also the tribe whose land was closest to Jerusalem. If you have followed me for a bit, you know that I'm a bit of a nerd for word counts. I know the number of times a specific word shows up doesn't magically give you the overall theme of the book, but I think it can clue us into things the biblical author wants us to take notice of. I firmly believe the vocabulary used sets the tone of the book, much like the musical score helps set the tone for a movie. It also helps us to identify repetitions, which can be how a book underlines its themes. Even though the narrative starts with the relationship between Hosea and Gomer, if you think that's the primary message of the book, the word counts give a different story. Hosea is mentioned by name only three times on average in the book, and Gomer's name averages only two mentions. If they were on social media, they would not be what's trending from this book. This book is about God, and specifically about what God is doing and what he will do. The word Lord or God shows up 79 times on average, compared to just three Hosea shoutouts. Also consistent with the theme of the book, adultery-type words like prostitute, whore, promiscuous, and adultery, these types of words show up 21 times in the book. Beyond that, it's a little hard to get good, meaningful word counts in this book. I mean, words like mercy might show up a lot, but half of the time it's about God showing mercy, and the other half it's about God showing no mercy. So while the theme of how God extends mercy or not is a big one, this is a good example where word counts might not tell the whole picture. You need to know context too. So if you hate my word count studies, the book of Hosea is particularly and partially a good case study for you to use against me. Also, if you're double-checking my word counts in one particular translation, then I recommend you check out some of my previous word count blog posts. I use an average count taken from six different translations. ESV, NASB, King James, CSV, NIV, and NLT. And then I take it and I match with the Hebrew root word to make sure I'm being accurate with what the translation's doing. Sometimes also reading a few different translations and seeing the differences can help create a more vivid picture in my mind. The first part of chapter 11 verse 9 is kind of like that when they're talking about the mercy of God. So I'll read the King James, NIV, NLT, CSB, and ESV translations in that order. I will not enter into the city. I will not come against their cities. I will not come to destroy. I will not come in rage. I will not come in wrath. 
Each one of those translations gives a decent picture, but just reading them all together helps me round out the overall image. There are a few phrases that get repeated in a way that should catch our attention. Specifically, the idea of God betrothing himself to his people. That word betroth means to pay a price and then gain possession of something. It becomes representative of the mercy that God extends to his people. Chapter 2, verses 19 and 20 really highlight this repetitive style. I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness, in justice, in loving kindness, and in compassion. I will even betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know Yahweh. I love the Bible because sometimes you'll be reading a passage that seems so clear and then that same sentence ends with something that makes you go, what, wait? Like the raisin cakes at the start of chapter 3. Yahweh said to me, go again, love a woman loved by another and an adulteress, even as Yahweh loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. Okay, so if I'm reading along, I have the first part, no problem. Go love a woman, even though she's an adulteress, just like the Lord loves the children of Israel, even though they turn to other gods. Cool, I'm tracking with that. But the sentence doesn't end there. Tacked on the end is though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. Alright, what's up with the raisin cakes? I don't have a crystal clear answer, but I do know that raisin cakes were traditionally offered at altars during some of these worship ceremonies to false gods. So some of the original audience members would have heard this and would, that would have applied directly to them. Maybe they just laid down a raisin cake at the altar of Baal. I'm not a baker, or at least not a good one, but I do know that baking is a slow, meticulous, intentional process. It's not a randomly impulsive act. They don't accidentally end up at the altar of these false gods with pre-baked goods. They were ending up at the altar of these false gods with very premeditated gifts of worship. If you buy a plane ticket and pack your suitcase, you don't accidentally board the plane. You made steps to do that beforehand. In stark contrast to this, later in the book, God actually likens the nation of Israel to a poorly baked item. Verse 7-8 says that Ephraim, Israel again, is a pancake not turned over. So those raisin cakes they were offering up to false gods might have been properly cooked, but the nation itself, mm, not so much. If you ever cook pancakes, you should see how edible one is that has never been flipped. If a decently thick pancake only cooks on one side, then the bottom will be burnt while the top will still be raw batter. It's just not appealing. It's not the deliciously fluffy product you want. The nation of Israel was taking some things too far and was failing to address many other areas entirely. They weren't following the outlines laid out by God and they weren't taking steps to fix that problem. Are we, Christians today, as the new Israel, as God's people, are we taking steps to seek God and then repent of the areas we've stepped outside God's provided boundaries? Are we properly cooked pancakes? Or are we raw on one side and burnt on the other? We also talked about Baal worship, idolatry, and adultery but I wanted to take the time to highlight some of the rebellion language that we didn't already cover last episode. A few verses and phrases that really underline how the culture as a whole had run away from God. Just how countercultural the idea of repenting and turning to back 
turning back to God would have been at that time. A lot of these are from chapter 7, but there's one from chapter 8 and another from chapter 13 if you're trying to follow along. Hosea 7.10 starts, The pride of Israel testifies to his face, yet they haven't returned to Yahweh their God, nor sought him. The beginning of 7.13 says, Woe to them, for they have wandered from me. The beginning of verse 14 says, They haven't cried to me with their heart, they turn away from me. The start of chapter 8, verse 14 says, For Israel has forgotten his maker. And then chapter 13, verse 6 ends, They were filled and their heart was exalted, therefore they have forgotten me. I think there is some reassurance in the idea that redemption was still God's plan in that time and is available in our time through the personal work of Jesus, even though we might struggle with wandering from God and pridefully forgetting what God has provided. The, the delta, the difference, is that we must seek God. We must repent and turn back towards God. So I love the ending of this book. It's full of the hopeful promises of God to bless his people. I'm just going to read chapter 14, verses 4 through 9 in their entirety. I will heal their waywardness. I will love them freely, for my anger is turned away from him. I will be like the dew to Israel. He will blossom like the lily and send down his roots like Lebanon. His branches will spread and his beauty will be like the olive tree and his fragrance like Lebanon. Men will dwell in his shade. They will revive like the grain and blossom like the vine. Their fragrance will be like the wine of Lebanon. Ephraim, what have I to do any more with idols? I answer and will take care of him. I am like a green fir tree. From me your fruit is found. Who is wise that he may understand these things? Who is prudent that he may know them? For the ways of Yahweh are right, and the righteous walk in them. But the rebellious stumble in them. So there is a lot of messianic type language in this passage that I want to zoom in. There are a lot of dots that connect to other passages in the Old Testament, and they're just fascinating. So at the risk of overextending the greenery images, I'm going to plant here for most of my remaining time. The passage starts with the picture of God healing his people's waywardness, loving them freely and turning his anger away from them. Waywardness here is the same word that gets translated other places as apostasy, unfaithfulness, or backsliding. It shows up a lot in the book of Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 3.6, the Lord says, Have you seen that which backsliding Israel has done? She has gone up on every high mountain and under every green tree, and there has played the prostitute. This sounds very similar to the book of Hosea, even relating the worship of false idols to every other green tree. While here in the book of Hosea, just a few verses down, the Lord references himself to being like a green fir tree that grants fruit. God is the true tree. Jesus even calls himself the true vine. This is a call to his people that they need to stop worshiping at all these false green trees. They aren't the ones that are going to produce fruit. Only God can produce good fruit. Later in that same chapter of Jeremiah, God continues, and this is jumping around a few verses, but they're all from Jeremiah chapter 3. I saw when for this very cause that backsliding Israel had committed adultery. She also went and played the prostitute. Return, you backsliding Israel, says Yahweh. I will not look in anger on you, for I am merciful, says Yahweh. I will not keep anger forever. So this is a call to stop committing adultery. 
but that God's going to heal their waywardness and then turn away his anger from them. And that's exactly what this passage in Hosea is saying too. Jeremiah 3 and Hosea are talking about some of the same type things. If all that wasn't clear enough, God just makes it plain in Jeremiah 3.22. Return, you backsliding children, I will heal your backsliding. In Hosea chapter 14, verse 5, we see God being like the dew that enables his people to blossom like a lily. Dew from God is a very interesting theme to trace in the Bible. I'm going to be honest, this was a blind spot of mine until studying for this podcast. It quickly became a rabbit hole. Dew is life-giving throughout the entire Old Testament. In Genesis 27:28, when Isaac is blessing his son Jacob, who would eventually be renamed Israel, one of the blessings Isaac gives is God give you the dew of the sky, of the fates of the earth, and plenty of grain and new wine. In the books of Exodus and Numbers, dew precedes the manna from heaven that sustains the Israelites. So Exodus 16, verses 13 through 15. It happened that evening that quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning the dew lay around the camp. When the dew that lay had gone, behold, on the surface of the wilderness was a small round thing, small as the frost on the ground. When the children of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they didn't know what it was. Moses said to them, It is the bread which Yahweh has given you to eat. Numbers 11.9 says, When the dew fell on the camp in the night, the manna fell on it. In Judges chapter 6, verses 36 and 40, Gideon is given a sign that he would save the nation of Israel when God provided dew during a series of trials. In the book of Job, Job says in chapter 29, verses 19 and 20, My root is spread out to the waters, the dew lies all night on my branch, my glory is fresh in me, my bow is renewed in my hand. Psalm 133 compares living together in unity with being like the dew of Hermon that comes down on the hills for Zion, for there Yahweh gives the blessing even life forevermore. Isaiah 26:19 says when talking about God's provision, your dead shall live, my bo- my dead bodies shall rise. Awake and sing, you who dwell in the dust, for your dew is like the dew of herbs, and the earth will cast forth the dead. And the last of the dew verses I'll cover are Zechariah chapter 8 verses 12 and 13. There are two verses talking about the restoration of Jerusalem and that really tie together the concepts of dew and vine and seed and fruit and blessings. They say, For the seed of peace and the vine will yield its fruit, and the ground will give its increase, and the heavens will give their dew, and I will cause the remnant of this people to inherit all these things. It shall come to pass that as you were a curse among the nations, house of Judah and house of Israel, so will I save you and you shall be a blessing. Don't be afraid. Let your hands be strong. In Hosea, God's people are represented as a mirror of Hosea's bride. God, the faithful husband, and his people, the bride that he calls back to himself. That's really interesting imagery when you look for lilies in the Bible, like mentioned in Hosea 14.5, because there's one book in the Bible that portrays the love between a husband and a bride that is laced with lily references. Fifteen times the Hebrew word for lily is mentioned in the Bible. Eight of them occur in the Bible's book of love. The Song of Solomon, or Song of Songs, is a book that really dives into the connection between a husband and his wife. 
and while the Song of Solomon is highlighting the physical, romantic connection that occurs on a wedding night, I think the language is worth noting to see additional connections that might be out there. In that book, the bride compares herself to a lily of the valleys and then goes on to repeat in two different places that my beloved is mine and I am his. He browses among the lilies. There's a connection between the blossoming of lilies and the bride mentioned in the Song of Solomon. I am not saying that the Song of Solomon is allegorical. I'm just pointing out that in Hosea, God is like a faithful husband redeeming his bride and is also the one that allows his people to blossom like a lily. In the Song of Solomon, the husband is calling to himself his bride, a lily of the valleys. Maybe one day I'll do a Song of Solomon series to clarify any emails that I imagine I'll be getting, but right now that seems like a connection to me. Also in the final passage of Hosea is God's people extending their roots, spreading out like branches and looking like an olive tree. Seeds, roots, shoots, sprouts, and branches echo across scripture in a couple different ways. The Messianic line would come from the seed of woman through the family tree of Abraham and then David, and the Messiah would be a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a righteous branch that would grow out of his roots and bear fruit. In the New Testament, Paul likens the Israelites to an olive tree whose root is holy in the book of Romans. He speaks of how the Israelites are the natural branches of this tree. But when some of the branches are broken off, it makes way for wild olive branches to be grafted into it. Where the wild olive branch represents Gentiles, all of us who are not of Israelite descent, but who can still find life through Jesus because we're grafted into this olive tree. He says, But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the root and of the richness of the olive tree, don't boast over the branches. But if you boast, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Men dwelling in the shade and rest of God, being like a blossoming vine that smells like wine, is also present at the end of Hosea. A vine that blossoms and smells like wine would be what kind of vine? This is probably imagery of a grapevine. And blossoms on a grapevine become grapes. So God's people would grow to become like a vine that produces good fruit. Hosea also references God being like a green fir tree from whom his people's fruit is found. The NASB translation says that God is like a luxuriant cypress, and from him comes your fruit. So in John 15, Jesus himself says, I am the true vine, and my father is the farmer. Every branch in me that doesn't bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. You are already pruned clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Remain in me and I in you as the branch can't bear fruit by itself unless it remains in the vine. So neither can you unless you remain in me. The final verse of Hosea reads like a section out of the book of Proverbs. Hosea 14.9 says, Who is wise that he may understand these things? Who is prudent that he may know them? For the ways of Yahweh are right and the righteous walk in them, but the rebellious stumble in them. Proverbs chapter 1 verses 2 through 5 state that the purpose of a book is to know wisdom and instruction. 
to discern the words of understanding, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the young man, that the wise man may hear and increase in learning, that the man of understanding may attain sound counsel. Proverbs 13 verses 5 and 6 say, Good understanding wins favor, but the way of the unfaithful is hard. Every prudent man acts from knowledge, but a fool exposes folly. And lastly, Proverbs 4, verses 11 and 12 say, I have taught you in the way of wisdom. I have led you in straight paths. When you go, your steps will not be hampered. When you run, you will not stumble. The last verse of Hosea and these verses in Proverbs are a notice for all who read God's word. It's a notice to take it to heart to walk in it and to process through its full message. There are also a number of cross-references between the book of Hosea and the covenant curses mentioned in the book of Deuteronomy. A few were mentioned in episode 1, but there are more, and for time's sake I'm going to try to share a list of those on the blog instead of in this episode. Deuteronomy is such a hard book to grasp but its imagery can be found throughout the rest of the Old Testament. It was God's final words through Moses to the nation of Israel right before they entered into the Promised Land. I recommend reading the verses I'll post from Deuteronomy directly followed by the verses in Hosea that I'll provide, and then just spend a few minutes connecting some dots. I will also do the same thing between Hosea and Deuteronomy for passage that are warning against a future exile as part of the covenant curses. These links always amaze me, and they remind me just how interconnected the Bible truly is. I'll end the episode refocusing on imagery provided of God calling his disobedient people back to himself, and offering salvation from our sins through the blood of Christ on the cross. Hosea 6, 1-3 say, Come and let us return to Yahweh, for he has torn us to pieces, and he will heal us. He has injured us, and he will bind up our wounds. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up, and we will live before him. Let us acknowledge Yahweh. Let us press on to know Yahweh. As surely as the sun rises, Yahweh will appear. He will come to us like the rain, like the spring rain that waters the earth. These next three verses are all going to be CSB translation. But Hosea 12 verses 5 and 6 say, The Lord is the God of armies. The Lord is his name. But you must return to your God. Maintain love and justice and always put your hope in God. Hosea 13 verse 4. I have been the Lord your God ever since the land of Egypt. You know no God but me and no Savior exists besides me. Hosea 14 2 says, Take words of repentance with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, forgive all our iniquity and accept what is good so that we may repay you with praise from our lips. We need to remember that throughout everything we experience, we have a God who is God through it all. We must constantly make sure that we are reorienting ourselves toward Jesus. And when we do that, we need to continually put our hope in God. He always keeps his promise, and all of the promises of God find their yes through Jesus. If you're interested in great resources for additional studies in Hosea, studies that have influenced me, I would recommend navigating to BibleProject.com and checking out their overview video on the book of Hosea. While this isn't a book specific to Hosea, I do highly recommend Thomas Schreiner's book, 
the king and his beauty, which really highlights the interconnectedness of various themes and passages of scripture. Unless otherwise noted, the scripture cited in the study was from the World English Bible Translation, which is public domain. Until next time, I love y'all.